Yeah, if we could just um, open up to John 18. And I don't know if you realise it, but as you open up to this part of the Bible, this is one of the most critical parts uh, of God's redemptive plan. It's actually come to a little bit of a crossroads for our Lord Jesus. And in the garden, we know that later on we'll read a little bit about how he was under such duress that he was sweating blood. So he is at a point here being tempted, being pressured. Gethsemane actually means the garden of the olive press. Our Lord is being pressed, pressured. And if he goes, my will, not yours, none of us are here. None of us are redeemed. So this is an incredibly crucial time. And make no mistake that Jesus is fully man and fully God, but he was tempted just like we were, as we are, except without sin. And so as we open up to John 18, and we're just going to look at the first 14 passages, and we're going to look at our first love in the garden. Remember, this year for the burn is a year of first love, making our first love first. That's what we feel is sort of being put on our hearts. And the other one is knowing our enemy. But today we're going to focus on our first love in the garden. I kind of think this is a cool Valentine's message. Because whatever love you have for your wife or husband or girlfriend or boyfriend, that Valentinian kind of love, it finds its source. If it's a true love and it's a pure love, it finds its source in the love of the Father, in the love of God. So this is very much a Valentine's message. And I've entitled it, We See... God sees because we all see things in certain ways, don't we? And I really want to ask you, and I want you to hold up the mirror of God's word today to yourself and go, well, how do I see my first love? And I know that we tend to flip-flop. We tend to be quite fickle in the way we see things. God knows that. He knows how fickle we are. But what I'm sort of more talking about, I guess, is a general trajectory to our affections or to our understanding or to our perception and in asking, how do we see Jesus? I guess I'm also asking is, how do we feel Jesus? How do we understand who Jesus is? How do we relate to Jesus? Last week, we saw Jesus pray for us. And essentially, we saw how Jesus sees us, didn't we? Remember, I said there was something burning in his heart. In fact, there were four main things that was burning in Jesus' heart for us. His last prayer was for us. And his first part of that prayer was to glory them. Do you remember the four? What were they? Can you remember? Unify. Awesome. Yeah, so he, in that prayer, and like I said, and as Luke already brought out, and that was really special, Luke. I just thank you. Where is he? The way that he leads us. It's just, it's just really good, mate. It's just natural and it flows. And yeah, you obviously... You yourself say you don't know everything, but neither do we. So that's cool. We're all here together. Um, and I just love the way you put that verse up there and made us think about it rather than just reading it. Um, because it was just sweet to hear people bringing that out. But even in that one verse, as we said, it's a deep well. This whole passage is a deep well. And we never have time to actually go into the full depths. And that's all right. You can do that in your own time or maybe it'll become more important later on. Anyway, so Jesus prayed, glorify them. So glorify himself in the first part of John 17. And we talked a little bit about that, about that. And then later on, he says, I've given them the glory, like we saw in the verse today. Then he prayed. So he shares that glory. And part of that glory was seeing power constrained and going to the cross for us. 
Then he prayed that we would be protected. It wasn't from death. There was something worse than death. Does anyone remember what that was? It was the loss of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. He was more concerned that they would fall away like Judas had fallen away. He prayed for their protection against that. I just use fortify because it rhymes with all the other ones, okay? So it was glorify, fortify. And then the next one was sanctify. Sanctify them. And Jesus was setting himself apart, truly sanctifying himself so that we might be sanctified. And what were we going to be sanctified by in an ongoing way? Does anyone remember? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so I was so glad that we're really getting into those memory verses now because that is what sanctifies us. That's what sets us apart. That's what deals with those kind of sin-bringing attitudes that hurt and hinder our relationship with God and with others. And then finally, it was unify them. So the oneness that Jesus has with the Father, he invites us into that and then he prays it. He prays that we will be unified so that that would be the test of legitimacy about whether Jesus was really from God in a sense. The world would look in and see this supernatural unity of all these disparate people because we're all disparate even here. Yeah, you know, we all come from the same town and stuff, but we're all different in our attitudes, our personalities. It's not going to be just a club that unifies us. It's going to be the Holy Spirit, something supernatural. And I just thought it was so wonderful, so spectacularly cool that Jesus would spend his last prayer on us. That burning in his heart was, Father, glorify them with the glory that we have. Bring, bring them in, sanctify them, fortify, protect, um, unify them. So we kind of saw how he saw us. It's so special. And then today, as we read 18, 1 to 14, I want us to ask ourselves and hold the mirror up to us, how do we see Jesus? And what we're going to do, we may not have seen this before in this passage or done it this way before in this passage, but I just feel led to do it this way. We're going to put ourselves into the shoes or the sandals, into the eyes of the disciples. We're going to put ourselves into the shoes or sandals or whatever of the soldiers and of the crowd. And what we're going to see is there's three ways that Jesus is seen. It's the same Jesus. It's the same events. But he's seen in three, maybe even four different ways. I really feel that um, this message will actually take us down into a deep kind of valley, a slump, and it's going to bring us back out. And I think it's already, in a way, doing that. Um, but I just want you to know that our God does really love us. And so even when there is something that happens and we go, you just seem irrelevant to me or you seem far away at this moment, he is near. We just sang it before, didn't we? Oh God, you're near. So I just want to preach through this. It's not a long sermon. Um, I'm just going to read this passage. And again, just encouraging you to see, see how Jesus is seen by certain parties in the garden. All right. So John 18, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Jesus had often gone out of the city to this little garden to be by himself. It was actually an orchard, an orchard of olive trees. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests. And Pharisees, officials there is actually elders, so elders of the people and chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing 
all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. That servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. How do we see Jesus? In this very familiar passage, there are three ways in which Jesus is seen. We're going to look at the disciples first. Okay, So the disciples knew Jesus the best. They were now called his friends. They were called his followers, his disciples. They were in close relationship with him. And I might just draw from you, like, what were some of the things that they had seen? Like, just give me little postcards from the things they had seen. Like, give, I'll give you an example. They had seen him feed 5,000 in a desert on the other side of a lake. They had seen him walking on water, striding across the water, striding through waves and a storm, 5,000 metres or so, to the boat. They had seen him raise the dead just only a few days before. Lazarus, his friend, they saw him weep at the tomb. They saw him say, Lazarus, come out. What else had they seen? They had seen water into wine, one of the first recorded miracles in John. They'd seen him heal a blind man. They tell us in the Gospel of Mark that he was at Peter's house and everybody came and power was just coming out of him. Boom, people healed here, there. Someone with cancer, someone blind, someone crippled. Just Now they see him in the garden. Now they see him under pressure. Now they see him under duress. And it's often said that if you want to know what someone's really made of, squeeze them. You know what I mean? Put them under pressure. We often go, oh, I was under pressure and I did this and said things and I shouldn't have. Well, is that how you are under pressure or is that how you really are? Jesus is put under pressure here and his disciples see him. What do they see? What do they see? Remember as well, they saw the glory on the mountaintop. Peter, James and John saw that transformed. So he looked like he was literally almost wearing lightning. Too bright to look at. Remember how they all fell down? That happens a lot, doesn't it? When God shows up in all his glory, people just fall down. So in verse 1, it says, When he had finished praying, praying for them, Jesus left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, which is on the slopes of um, the Mount of Olives, in a garden called Gethsemane, which John doesn't record, he often doesn't record the details that he know are already in the other Gospels, because remember, John wrote this last out of all the, 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 the Gospel accounts. There was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now this place was called Gethsemane, the place of the olive press. There's a garden now, which if you go and do the tourist thing, 
around Jerusalem, you'll be taken to the Garden of Gethsemane. Whether it's the exact spot or not uh, isn't known for sure. But what is known for sure is that these are an original grove of olive trees, or at least the descendants of the original grove of olive trees, that probably were the same type that Jesus was amongst on that night. The Garden of Gethsemane, it says they went into it, so it probably indicates that it was a walled garden. Um, these trees are about 900 years old that you can see. You can just Google them. And they're probably, most scholars agree, the remnant of those natural um, trees that were in the garden that Jesus prayed under. So this is, kind of, this is kind of the scene, okay? It's the Passover. It's the full moon. Imagine a scene like this in amongst the trees. Jesus leaves uh, a, the bigger group of the disciples behind. He asks Peter, James and John to come with him a bit further. Then he leaves them behind and he goes a bit further into the garden. They're outside the lights of Jerusalem. There's a full moon. In that dim light, what do they see? He says to Peter, and this is what I'm going to do, is I'm just going to draw some gospel accounts out from, uh, sorry, draw some other accounts from the other gospels. So this is Matthew 26, 37. You don't have to turn there. You can look at it later if you want. But it says here, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so that's James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38 says, he said to them, to these three, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. It's literally, I'm drowning in sorrow, my brothers. Okay, that's what they see. To the point of death, Jesus wasn't one to exaggerate. If he's saying, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death, he means it. He doesn't embellish. He doesn't overstate. The next thing he says is, stay here and keep watch with me. The Son of God is asking in his moment of pressure, in his moment of extreme crisis, extreme trauma of the soul, he says to his closest, Peter, James and John, stay here, watch, pray. He goes further into the garden and he prays. He comes back. What are they doing? You know the story. They're asleep. This is one of the fewest, I cannot think of any other, help me out if you, where Jesus actually asks, to be prayed for or asked to be helped or asked for some benefit for himself physically. And it actually says in Matthew that he comes, comes and goes three times. He goes in, he comes back, finds him sleeping. He kind of rebukes him and says, can't you even keep watch for one hour? This really challenged me when I turned 30 because I realized that so much of my own time was just sort of wasted and scattered and fragmented around these other things. And I was really challenged. I'm not saying this is a challenge for everyone. It was just a challenge for me at that time. Will you keep watch each day with me, Adrian? One hour. That was a big challenge. You know, to read the Bible and pray with the Lord for an hour. But I was so challenged by the fact that here was the Lord Jesus in his hour of need. You know, the kenosis, everyone know what the kenosis is? It's, it's a Greek word. It's a, it's a word of theology that means Jesus in some way emptied himself or at least partly emptied himself of his godhood. So there he is, emptied of his godhood in a way, but still fully God, still fully man. And he says, I'm overwhelmed. Would you pray with me? Would you keep watch with me? And he comes back and they're sleeping. The saddest time when he comes back is on the second time, it says in Matthew, and he finds them sleeping. He doesn't say anything. He just goes back into the garden further. He comes back a third time. He says to him again, you couldn't, you couldn't keep watch and pray. And at that very moment... 
at that very moment, Judas shows up. He says, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, this is from Matthew as well. The hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. They missed out on praying for their Lord. They didn't see anything of Jesus in that moment except the backsides of their eyelids. And if any one of us was there, we'd be sleeping too. I like going to bed early. I hate being tired. I hate being tired on shift work. I hate being tired when I was in the army. I hated it. I'd do anything I could to sleep. And we have to ask ourselves, is sleep more important? Is that kind of human need more important than sort of being with our Lord in his hour of need? And, you know, none of us would have done any better. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now things are about to get kind of just sickly traumatic in the soul for the, for the disciples. It's just, it's going to get awful. And we're back in John now. The, the, the group, the crowd, the, the Gospel of Matthew calls it a crowd. Um, here it's called a detachment in the NIV. The word there is like cohort, which could have been up to 600 people. Most scholars think it was probably about 200. Some have tried to say that, well, you know, it was only just one man and 11 people, so they wouldn't have needed that many. Well, what they failed to understand is in this group that comes up, this detachment are the temple police or the temple guard, a bunch of select Levites who were brought together to enforce the law, enforce the Pharisees and the high priest kind of uh, wishes. These are the same guys that back in John 7 came along to arrest Jesus and then went back and go, no one's ever talked like this before. They didn't arrest him. Remember, these are the same people that would have seen Jesus in the courtyard preaching. They would have tried to lay hands on him. Remember all the times in the gospel they try to lay hands? No, not the time, so he gets away or just walks away. You know? These are the same that have seen Jesus' power. These are the same that know all the prophecies about the Messiah. So I reckon there was at least 200 because they were probably a bit worried there was going to be an uprising. Maybe more. Amongst them are the, the elders of the people, the leaders. Amongst them are the uh, high priest representatives. And amongst them, as it says in verse 5, and John just says it straight out, Judas the traitor was standing there with him. Verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So did Judas. Judas falls down with them. He's now numbered with the persecuting mob. Again, he asked them in verse 7, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And in verse 8, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. Now, do you see something strange in the garden here? With this big mass of troops, it's dark, it's fearful. It's... Do you see what's strange? Yes, he's got control, but do you also see what happens next? Peter. Now, he's got a little short sword, probably a little Roman sword that you could hide under your cloak. In Luke, it says all of them in this moment decide to have a go. Oh, yeah, this is it. We're now going to see King Jesus, Messiah Jesus, use his military superpowers. And you guys, man, he's going to kick butt and take some names here. So let's get in. Let's get into it, boys. So they rush in and there's a brief melee. It's only very brief. Peter's swinging wildly, manages to take an ear off. The other disciples are all saying the same. And then Jesus says, stop it. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Before he prayed, could you take this cup away? 
He resisted that temptation. Now he's saying, I will drink that cup, and Peter, put your sword away. So that's the first strange kind of thing, but it's sort of explained by the fact that they see everyone fall down. It's like, this is it. But the second strange thing is that they're all let go. You know, these, these um, special temple police, temple guard, temple soldiers, maybe the original Templars, I don't know. Um, Romans are amongst them as well. They then let the other 11 go. That's a bit strange. We'll get to that in a minute. And so the next thing that the disciples see as they're probably the last thing they see is him being bound and arrested. God is in chains. And they run. They scatter. Peter and John will later follow, and in future weeks we'll uh, look more into that. But all they see is their saviour, their Messiah, instead of this magnificent display of superpowers, it's now he's just being dragged away. So, and so their expectations haven't been met. I don't know about you, but... Have your expectations often in your way of seeing Jesus not being met? Come on, be honest. Yeah, all the time. Hey? In some other ways, like spectacularly met. But we live in a fallen world. We live with a fallen nature. And oftentimes we don't see things the way we ought to. And the worst thing about that is we don't see God. We don't see Jesus as we ought to. So at this moment, if we are in the disciples' shoes, all we see is confusion, unmet expectations, hopelessness. He was supposed to be the Messiah. He was supposed to be the king. What was all that I am stuff about anyway, Jesus? I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am the resurrection and the life. I am he. And then like, everyone falls down and now you're just getting dragged. Is that just a parlor trick? or something? What was that, Jesus? The disciples had constructed in their mind a picture of who Jesus was supposed to be. And when he didn't meet their expectation, there was confusion, hopelessness, faithlessness. That's what they saw. What did the detachment see? Like I said, you've got temple guards, you've got uh, Levites, you've got Roman soldiers, you've got elders of the people. You've probably just got people that came along just out of interest as a mob. They've got clubs, they've got swords. They're all armed. How do they see Jesus? Well, they see the same, I am he. They all fall down. And it's like maybe they're struck with fear in that moment. Maybe they're, whoa, whoa, maybe, maybe this is the guy. Then they hear him say, you know, let these ones go. And they go and have another go. And this time they're able to grab him. This time they're able to bind him. And no doubt, you know, there'd be a couple of kicks going in there maybe deliberately tripping him as they're going along in the night. Maybe just, you useless piece of whatever. Insert your own swear word. So over time, it's just, you know what? You know how we see you? Irrelevant. Just, a, just another one of these supposed false messiahs. Just another irrelevant person to me. Just another criminal. That's all you are. And look at you, 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 you were... You were, you were betrayed by your, own, by your own friend. That's pathetic. Romans love power. They love glory. So they would have been seeing him as the Jews. They love the law. They love the majesty of God. And you dare say you were God? Then, of course, there's the fight and the melee. But like, there's at least 200, probably more. Yeah, good one, Pete. Nice one. Have a go. Whatever. Now, see ya. See you later. Bye. Bye. 
or running off into the, into the darkness, into the dim light. You know, the group that was 11 around Jesus, now it's just one. Right, we've got him, let's take him. He's bound, he's arrested, and they drag him to the high priest, which we'll hear more about from Ben next week. They see him bound and arrested. And you know, like if you were to summarise how they see him, just extremely irrelevant. And so much of the world just sees Jesus as extremely irrelevant. Now, they don't even care how they see him. And even if you say they see him as irrelevant, it's because in day-to-day life, he's just so small. He's like either a swear word or you know, some religious figure that not many people know about. You know, in terms of all the things that attach themselves to Jesus, in, in terms of themes, holiness, redemption, sin forgiven, faith, hope, love, God who is relational. It's just, it's just irrelevant. It's just not relevant. So you've got one group of people that just see him as sort of disappointing, just not what they thought. And then they've got others that just just irrelevant. And again, how do we see him? How do we see Jesus? Not what we thought, irrelevant. There's a third perspective that I just want to go through with you. This is the perspective of God the Father. Of God the Father seeing God the Son in the garden. How does God the Father see God the Son? I'm just going to read you some verses from his baptism when he starts his ministry. You remember the voice from heaven. This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You know, we can, we can actually get a little bit of an understanding of this when we think of our own children, for those of us that have children. And, you know, little, one of our children does something really cool. I'm going to use Becky as an example. Uh, we were helping a, an older lady that lives down on Audley Street, been with us by herself for quite some time. And she'd mentioned that it was her 90th birthday. As it turned out, it was her 89th. She forgot. <laughs> um, anyway, I... And it was supposed to be the following Tuesday. And I completely forgot about it after that. But Becky goes, oh, it's her birthday. We'll make her a cake. So she made her a cake. And I was just, wow, that's really cool, Becky. Really pleased with it. So now let's ratchet that up by a million trillion times in terms of that same feeling, that same affection that God has for, the, for, for his son, for his child. That's what you get a bit here. I'm well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the lightning bolt moment, literally where Jesus is just transformed into all his kind of visual glory. This is my son, son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. John 3, Jesus himself says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. John 5, 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. So how does God the Father see God the Son in the garden? What God sees. God is the only one that sees Jesus in the center of the garden. The other guys are asleep. And he sees a prayer under duress, a prayer under extreme pressure. Mark 14 says that going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take the cup from me, yet not what I will, but you, what you will. Do you realize this is the only prayer you'll find in the Bible where Jesus prays something for himself? Yep, there's the glorify me prayer, but then he says he gives that glory, he shares that glory. Almost every time he prays or every time he says something, he's helping someone else. In this moment, 
he prays, would you, would you take the cup from me? Luke tells us that he, it's, it's, it, he's at such a point of crisis that there's a thing called uh, hemidrosis or hemidrosis, which is when you sweat blood. People on death row have been known to do it. Um, clinicians aren't really sure why it happens. They just know it happens under extreme duress. It's a medical fact. You can Google it later. There's a couple of different words for it. Under extreme duress. And he cries out, Abba, Father. There's only two other verses, two other times where Jesus record, oh, sorry, in the Bible where Abba is recorded. Remember what Paul said? I'm giving you the spirit of sonship so that what, what happens in our heart? We cry out, Abba, Father. That's the real test of whether you're a Christian or not, whether in your heart the spirit is causing Abba, Father. It's kind of like that son to a father or, or, or daughter to a father affection. It's here. It's right here. Abba, 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 Father. Take it. Take the cup. Yet not what I will, but you, what you will. He's tempted to stop, tempted to give it away. God sees all that. And you know what happens in that moment? God doesn't take the cup away, but he does something really special for his son. It's in Luke. I'll read it to you. And in that very moment where Jesus says, not my will, but yours, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. I really love that because what it says is that you may not have your moment of duress taken away, but you will be comforted. You will be strengthened. Just as Jesus was. And do you know what he does next? And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drop, drops of blood falling to the ground. So even then, even instead of going, oh, thank you for the relief, he prays more earnestly to his father. God sees that. He sees that and he is well pleased. He's well pleased. The disciples, don't know who that guy was. The soldiers, irrelevant, spit on him. God well pleased. God sees his son sweat blood. And it's not a hot night. Later on, you'll see that Peter's warming himself by fire. This is not a humid night sweat. This is duress. This is pressure. This is crisis of the soul. Extreme duress. God sees that and he's well pleased. Perseverance sweated out in blood. Well pleased. This is my son. Well pleased. Temptation overcome. Does anyone else know of another garden where there was temptation? Eden. Awesome. Eden. Now let's put ourselves in Eden for a moment. The wind is in our sails, right? We are not fallen yet. We have a soul and a will that is perfectly formed. And God says, see this bounty? See this paradise? That's what Eden means, paradise. You get to dwell here, walk in it. Work with me on it. Just one thing. Just that tree in the center. Don't touch it. Sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> don't eat from it. He didn't say don't touch it. That was Satan's little ploy. Don't eat from it. Everything else you can have. An abundance. They are not sweating blood when they are tempted. Okay. They have everything going for them. They are well fed, well watered, well satisfied in that holy marriage that they've got going there. In this garden, everything is against the Son of God. He would be under extreme and critical um, strain of the soul, of the body, tired physically, contemplating what's about to happen. And just juxtapose those two gardens. 
Eve eats of the fruit, gives it to her husband, chaos, death, everything just comes out of that. Yet Jesus, or God, has still got a plan. And the plan is that redemption will begin in another garden by the full and true Adam who will not be overcome, even under extreme duress. So there is God, the Lord Jesus, kenosis, emptied out of somehow in some way lowering himself in terms of his godhood, but still fully God, still fully man, and he overcomes that temptation. And God sees that and God is well pleased with his son. And then God sees the I am. So Jesus says, I am he. And again, some commentators will say, oh, it's not really expressing the emphasis in the Greek in the same way as I am the bread or I am the life. I just think that's a load of rubbish. Like, you know why? I'm not, I'm not smarter than commentators, but I can read the context. Why would they fall down if he just said, yeah, I'm he? They would have grabbed him. Good, good. No. There is an emphasis there, and there is power there. That is what actually triggers the little melee, because the disciples think, this is it. We heard, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. When the Pharisees heard that, I am, they tried to kill him because they knew that he was saying, I am that I am. He was using Yahweh. He was using God's name. Now he steps up and he says, I am he. I am the one you will arrest and kill. I am the one that you will staple, nail to a cross. I am the one that you will pierce with a sword. I am the one that you will spit on. I am he. I am, think about that. I, I am the gate. I am the light. I am the good shepherd. I am he who you will kill. I am. But what is the point? What is the point of, God, of Jesus for a moment in the garden fully exerting his authority? Do you really think that hundreds of troops are going to let these disciples go? Why would they do that? No way. Jesus exerts his authority so that the prophecy might come true that he would not lose any of those that have been given to him. So when he says, I am he, and they all fall back, the very next thing he says is, don't have, sorry, the very next thing he says is, let these ones go. And they do. He has exerted his authority in that moment so that his disciples would get away, would be released, and they are. He could have called down how many legions of angels? Does anyone remember from other gospel accounts? Twelve. Anyone remember how many people or soldiers are in a legion? It varied a bit, but on average, 6,000. So 12 times 6,000, that's what, 72,000? 72,000 angels. It only takes one angel to take out hundreds of thousands of Assyrian warriors. So imagine what 72,000 would do. But even 72,000 angels ratcheted up times a million, times a trillion, whatever, still don't have the power of the Son of God. God sees them fall back. He sees his son exert his authority so that in a giving way, his disciples can escape and are let go. He sees that authority then constrained again. Sort of like, then. Well pleased. He sees selfless authority, well pleased. He sees constrained authority, well pleased. Because it is 
constrained for you and for me. It is constrained so that that which is burning in the heart of God, that he would be relationally one with his people again, might be fulfilled. That, so that Jesus, when he says, I'm sanctifying myself, truly sanctifying myself, back in the prayer in John 17, so that we would be truly sanctified, so that we would be truly one in relationship with God again. God sees and says, well pleased. The crowd sees irrelevance and weakness. God sees perseverance, self-sacrifice, love, faith, obedience, sweated out in blood, and God is well pleased. He is well pleased all the way to the cross. And then for one moment, and it's the same as last week, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting the psalm, and yet quoting the reality of him bearing, Jesus bearing the sin of the world. For one moment, God is displeased with the sin of the world on Jesus. Jesus was willing to do that for you and for me. And God was well pleased, well pleased with what happened next because Jesus says, I lay down my life, I have authority to take it up again and God loves me because of that. That's back in John as well. What a God. What a love. What a Christ. What a saviour. What a religion. <laughs> how God sees things, how God loves, that's the way things really are. Now, if you're just looking at Jesus in the garden as a good example of what to do when you're under pressure, or just a sort of good uh, exemplar, you know, like any of the other martyrs, it doesn't work. It, it, it just doesn't inspire in the same way. You know why? Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Did it inspire them? Oh, look, Jesus, our religious leader, is setting a good example. So we should be strong too now. Come on. No. No. And you know, when you think about all the ways that Jesus has seen, we have to be honest. We read through this passage. We just gloss over it. It's so good what you said before, Luke. We tend to just, you know, skim over the surface. Now think about the ocean, right? If you just look at the surface, you know, that's all. If you get a pair of goggles, face mask, look down, whoa. There's a whole nother world there. It's like the Bible, guys. There's a whole nother world when you look deep, when you pause, when you stop. What a God. What a Savior. What a Christ. What a love. What a hope. And I want to finish again with this question. How do we see Jesus? And here's the awesome part of the sermon. If that wasn't awesome enough, Here's the awesome part, the most awesomest, awesomest part. And it's quoting the same verse from last week that Jesus finished his prayer off because this is what is still burning in his heart. John 17, verse 26. I have made them, made you, sorry, I have made you known to them, made God the Father known to them. But not just God the Father, but God is in, in his entirety. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I have made God known to you. I've made known his majesty, his spectacular glory, his, his love, his holiness. You see it all in me. I have made you known to them. And what does it say there? Can someone read that out? Will what? In 26, verse, John 17, verse 26. Will continue known in order that why? That, yep. Awesome. So, 
all this love, we just, we just spent this last 15 minutes on God the Father, how he sees his son. Okay? So now Jesus says, I'm going to continue this. I'm going to continue to make you known, Father. I'm going to continue to make the love that you have known, the love that you have for me, all right? I'm going to continue to work to, to, so they know that, so that it will be in you. So this love where, where God the Father sees God the Son persevering through sweat and blood and spears and nails and that love that the Father has for the Son, Jesus says, I want to keep making you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself be in them. So, so the relationship is restored. And this relationship, guys, this relationship, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is just, just picture in your mind how, how the Father sees his Son. That is how he sees you. Do you understand that? I'm getting passionate about it because it is the one thing that will see you through, that will see you to the end. I don't often raise my voice, so just bear with me. It is the one thing. It is the one characteristic that will see you through. The relational love of the Father being poured out through the continuing ministry of the Son, the oneness with the Son, the walking in relationship with Him. That is the one thing. Because that comes from Him, not from you. That comes from Him. And that is so awesome because when the Father, all the time He said, well pleased, well pleased. Well, if you're walking in relationship with Him, if you have bent the knee, if you are depending on Him day by day, and if in your heart even there's just that little glimmer of Abba, Father, how I need you, if you are walking in relationship with Him, He's well pleased with you. He's well pleased with you. Nadine, well pleased. Colin, well, Steve, Steve, BJ, well pleased. You know, take a, t t take a selfie of yourself and like see behind you the Son of God who has made you one with Him. That is how God sees you when you take your spiritual selfies. And you don't have anything to boast in. All you've got is someone to thank, don't you? And if you find this kind of tiresome or a bit creepy or a bit weird, I encourage you to, to go deeper. Put your face mask on and look deep into the heart of this passage. The heart of God. It's so easy just to gloss over this kind of thing. But he is well pleased. Well pleased. Camille, well pleased with you. Ben, well pleased. I'm going to pray. Um, and then we're going to get to exhibit, to express our oneness with Christ in this mealtime together. We should examine our hearts. We should be encouraged and empowered to come to the table by the reality of our oneness with Jesus. So we come and we share the table. We share the cup. We share the bread. Let's pray about that. Father, how glorious and grand this plan, this sacrifice that we think of that figure in the garden. If, if only we could just see it for a moment in the dim moonlight, alone in the center, away from his friends, 
probably could hear the noises of troops coming up the hill. How will we see you in that moment? Will we see you as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Will we see you as the death-defeating Messiah King who will not let extreme duress stop him from pursuing us? Stop him from loving his Father in ultimate obedience? Will we see him as that, oh, Father, I pray that we would, and I pray that this Abba, Father, in our souls would come out into beautiful obedience. Oh, Lord, that you would move through this church, and in these share times there would be wonderful accounts of what you are doing, and we'd be saying, what a God, what a Saviour. Oh, Father, that you would move through us in our workplace, that we would truly glow for you. We'd be well lit in those places. Oh, Father, that we would serve well, even those that may not like us. Father, I pray that we would see you, your Son, your Spirit, as you really are. And Lord, I just pray that as we come to the table, we would know the reality of the living Lord Jesus who even now continues to make you known, to make this love known. So help us, I pray, O oh Father. Help this little church of Willowburn to grow, to grow in grace, to grow in truth. And we will be people that are characterized by Abba, Father, faith, hope, love. We will be characterized by a devotion that is growing to our Lord Jesus. We will be characterized by this devotion and this love with arms and legs on serving, loving. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.